The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, well, it's good to see you. Yep. Father, we have received uh, quite a few requests to talk about uh, a, a House resolution that has been proposed. It's uh, titled HR 6666, interesting uh, title there. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could just read the, the summary of this bill, Father, it says uh, that it is intended to authorize the Secretary of Health and Human Services to award grants to eligible entities to conduct diagnostic testing for COVID-19 and related activities such as contact tracing through mobile health units and as necessary, at individuals' residences and for other purposes. So, Father, you and I, I believe, have both read through the, the text of this bill. It's, it's really not that long. It's, it's only a, a couple pages, but there are some uh, very serious ramifications of, of this, um, just reading through, through the text of it. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that, that the concerns our viewers have are justified concerning this House Resolution 6666? I definitely think so, yes. In fact, uh, if anything, I fear that they might understate the gravity of this. Uh, this embodies, in my, my, to my mind, uh, exactly what the political, the leftist political response to the COVID-19 national emergency is all about. That they are using this pathogen uh, as a uh, battering ram of fear to terrorize the American population into surrendering its liberties. And that if this HR 6666 uh, is enacted into law, that it will be used as a primary institute, a primary instrument of tyranny to impose tyranny on the population of the United States of America. Um, now, I know one could read this very clinically and say, oh, it just wants to put some services uh, at the disposal of, or for the benefit of, uh, let's say, underserved communities in, in hotspots where the rate of infection is higher than the national average. So, of course, this is all in the interest of the poor and the, and the downtrodden, as we might be, as the the poor masses, right, struggling to be free, as Karl Marx would say. Um, but the fact is that one can read here on these pages a formula for the imposition of a national lockdown um, which goes far beyond anything we've seen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anything that even any, any leftist Democrat governor could dream of. Uh, to have a squad of people funded, as it says, $100 billion for the year 2020. Yeah. What's left of the year 2020? $100 billion, yep. which I think you calculated comes down to 
a little about $350 per man, woman, and child, every man, woman, and child in the United States of America, right? <laughs> <clears throat> Stretching from sea to shining sea and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that uh, they can be tested, but not only uh, tested, but that their their contacts will be trusted, uh, will be traced. Right. Their human contacts, all the people that they've had contact with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, supposedly during the period of their infection, that these people are going to be found out, investigated, and uh, put under quarantine, right? So, uh, I mean, you think about the practical implications of this, which unfortunately people often don't consider the practical implications of these bills that are being passed. Maybe even some of the members of the House of Representatives would sign this without thinking in terms of the practical implications, just because they're more concerned about the political implications of not signing it, right? But here you are, okay, you're at home with your wife and your children, and suddenly the squad pulls up, like the health SWAT team, right? Why? Because your wife was at the supermarket that day, and maybe she picked up uh, whatever was left there on the shelves, and uh, she came back home to feed the family, and it turns out that uh, she was spotted on security camera and uh, traced, right, because somebody in the store was found to have the coronavirus, okay, to be infected. Now, whether or not that test was accurate, who knows, right? Who knows? We know the tests give false positive and false negatives. And, uh, but anyway, she has been cited along with perhaps 20 other people who uh, over the previous 24 hours had been in contact with that individual now who has tested positive. Someone she never met, someone she might have just been under the same roof with for 25 seconds maybe. <laughs> She's making a purchase at the store. And now your family's under quarantine. Just like that. The SWAT team of health shows up and um, you are uh, you are all in danger. You are, at least that is you are pronounced to be in danger, right? And they're going to support your quarantine. Just like that. You had no idea this was coming. She had, your wife had no idea this no. was coming. Of course, your children didn't, right? But there they are. There they are in their hazmat suits. And uh, bingo, you, you are under quarantine. Uh, is this out of, out of the question? No, this is exactly what this is all about. And uh, it makes uh, anything we've seen so far look like nothing in comparison yeah. to that. The problem is here, Tom, see, they're offering to open up the economy. They're offering to open up. And uh, they're, they're not going to be able to stop it, especially the Democrats. The Democrats and the leftists see that they're not going to stop this opening up. And so they want to be sure that this is as painful as possible and that they get as much as they can in terms of control. They do not want to relinquish control. And so they're going to say, okay, we're going to open up, but there are going to be consequences to opening up, okay? And this is what we need to do to allow you to open up. This is what we need you to do. This is what we're going to require you to do. For example, I mean, it has never been required that in religious services, for example, it's not another subject, but just by way of illustration, okay? It has never been required that when there are religious services being conducted face-to-face here in all of this 
COVID-19 scare, that everybody who comes to the church has to wear a facial mask, right? It has not been required. Rather that most of the churches by far simply closed down, okay? And the churches that haven't been closed down have been pressured to close down, or in some cases simply forced to close down, okay? Ours is being pressured to close down. We haven't been forced to do so, okay? But now here's the deal, okay? Now we say, okay, now we're going to take the pressure off and allow the churches to begin to meet again, and we're going to allow the people to come together in the churches. Now these are the conditions that they have to meet, see? So now they're going to impose stricter and stricter conditions to allow the opening up to go. So now they want to impose, in some places, well, we can't allow people now to... Um, begin to reassemble in their churches unless they're all wearing masks, okay? So now we're going to require something that wasn't required before, that couldn't be required before. But that's a condition now of your opening up. And so it is, the Democrats are going to be trying to push all of these tighter and tighter regulations as the price we have to pay for opening up the economy now. It's like holding America hostage. It really is. And, and, this is, I fear, exactly literally going to be holding America hostage. Mm -hmm. That these roving SWAT teams of health are going to be tracing anybody who's been in contact with anybody who has been tested or is suspected even in the process of being tested um, of having COVID-19, um, that all of those people are going to be tracked down. They're going to be tracked down to their homes. And they're going to be subject to this quarantine in their homes and all of these regulations. You know, who knows how long? This bill is supposed to last as long as the, as the problem lasts, yeah. as long as the crisis lasts. So it's open-ended, right? Mm -hmm. They've even authorized funding for the next few, few years even, as, or as long as this price. So they, they've, they've actually gone a year or two in it out, yeah. uh, allowing, authorizing the funding. Yeah, that, that's and that seems to be one of the the, the worst aspects of this this bill because, like you say, it, it's well, it's so vague. Just just talking about the, uh, the the sums of money it says here at the very end, it says um, that uh, the authorization of appropriations to carry out this section, they there are authorized to be appointed the one hundred million for the fiscal year twenty twenty, and such sums as may be necessary for each of fiscal year twenty twenty one and any subsequent fiscal year during which the emergency period continues. So you mm -hmm. just see this open-ended, vague, and that carries over to, yeah. to really the, the rest of the bill where, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the quarantine at the, the individual's residences. And I mean, if, if that isn't bad enough, that's that's just what's listed here. But it, it says here that that um, this grants the ability to, to do uh, other related activities, other purposes, yeah. um, things as necessary. I mean, how, how you couldn't be any more any more vague than that. So I mean, it basically this is a formula for tyranny yeah. in the name of health. But it's all about that. I mean, politically, the political reaction to this has been about control, not about health. It's been about control, and they've demonstrated that in their police actions all this time, right? The governors and the mayors, right? And unfortunately, taking advantage of compliant police, sheriffs, right, uh, to, f to carry out their, their, their commands, their dictatorial commands in the name of health. And, and time and time again, you read occasions where it manifestly has nothing to do with health. It's entirely about control. And you know, Tom, this was introduced by a man named Bobby Rush. One of, the, one of Bobby Rush's great heroes is Huey Long, 
right? Is that is that the name, Ashley? I Ewing. Think so, yeah. Okay, co-founder of the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't that doesn't sound right, Huey uh, Newton. I think Maybe, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think Huey Long was a politico from the South who got himself into trouble and some kind of scandals. But in any case, uh, you can look that up. Maybe, yeah. maybe you should, because we want to get this right. We don't want to defame anybody. Mm -hmm. But one of the co-founders of the of the Black Panthers is the hero of this man. Well, and Bobby Rush himself was one of the co-founders of the the I believe the Illinois chapter. Chapter of that, yeah. And he yeah. named his son after this man, Huey. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's a real devotee of this. So he's he's the one behind it. And if you read the list of those co-sponsors of this. The list goes on quite a ways, and uh, I, I mean, I, from the look of it, from those are the names I recognize, from those I see, they're Democrats, and, um, you know, th they uh, are all leftists. I mean, the name, it's kind of the same, I mean, Democrats <laughs> and leftists, but there are Democrats who are more left, farther left than others, you mm -hmm. know, and what, the, what that means is they're in favor of a kind of dictatorial, totalitarian uh, despotism, right? Uh, government power, right? What what do you find there, by the way? That was Huey Huey Newton. Huey Huey Newton. Yeah, yeah I know you in London somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Huey Newton, co-founder of the Black Panthers. Thanks for checking that out there. Um, so uh, Huey Long had problems of his own, yeah. but they were not those I know. In any case, um, but this is the kind of thing we're dealing with, and as you say, it's completely open-ended as to what powers these things have. Yeah. By the way. This authorizes the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who right now, as you mentioned, is Alex Azar, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he was appointed by uh, President Trump, right? right. right. Now, uh, no, no doubt the Democrats have their eye on the Oval Office for uh, November and, uh, and the future, and they will be appointing the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services on their own, right. and heaven only knows what that's going to come to, okay? So, as I say, this is a formula for tyranny here. And if it depends on who the individual is, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, if he has the ability to uh, appoint these and to f actually uh, appropriate these funds, then that individual is going to have inconceivably great power over the entire United States of America to wreak havoc and terror. Talk about a reign of terror that this could become. So, uh, I mean, the fact that they're investing an individual with power like this is inconceivable. But, uh, and we see something like that here in Ohio where the, the uh, Ohio revised, co revised code uh, grants to the director of health here, the, uh, the health department, Inconceivably great powers, uh, seemingly uh, without without even necessary breaks or limitations on it. Nothing to govern those powers, you know, um, or very little. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that Americans should really be wary of, to say the least, you know. Um, so when you when you ask, well, are people concerned about this, rightly or? Uh, or not, I'd say they are concerned about it rightly if they are very concerned about it and they realize that this is a formula for tyranny mm -hmm. in the name of health care. But then, of course, the leftists have actually been saying this for years. When Hillary Clinton was getting involved in the health care question, 
Now, she's one of the first ones to float some kind of health care uh, program, you know, mm-hmm. national health care program. That should have been a red flag right there, you know. But the idea has been that this tyranny is going to come about through health care. That's how it's going to be imposed. And um, even G.K. Chesterton, back in the 1930s, so that he could see many avenues to tyranny. One of them, he said, would be through doctors. And by that, he didn't mean the family physician, <laughs> that they would become the tyrant, but through what we know now as health care. But that's how this could be imposed. And the leftists have seen this a long way off, and they've been working toward it. And we see now what they saw. We're, we're, we're witnessing now what they foresaw as they're trying to use this COVID-19 virus to impose a kind of uh, medical tyranny on every man, woman, and child in the United States of America, and eventually uh, throughout the world through this uh, this vaccine that Bill Gates wants to uh, wants to impose on humanity. Mm-hmm. So, how do, how do we oppose this, Father? What what do we do to fight this 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 HR six 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 six? And do you see any any kind of irony in that name? Oh, no, there's no connection whatsoever. You know, it is ironic. It is truly ironic. It's like 666, uh, you know, to the nth degree here. So I think there's a message in this also that should be a little bit of a warning. I mean, God does have an ironic sense of humor. You know that? Yes. And and sometimes he does send hints, even to those who are very, very dense, or let's face it, most of us are. But God evidently does send hints to us every now and then to get our attention. And I think he wants us to pay attention to this. Okay? And uh, that number is 666 should certainly jump, jump off the page mm-hmm. at, at anybody who's familiar with uh, sacred scripture and be a, a kind of a red flag, to say the least. And how do we oppose it? Well, how would we oppose anything? Well, you know... I, I know people have said our voting uh, um, apparatus here in the United States is entirely compromised, and uh, we can't have a great deal of confidence in the accuracy of the vote. Um, nonetheless, I mean, we have to think there, think of the ballot box. We have to think about who we want in power and who we don't want in power. And we have to take that very seriously now. We see it does matter. We see how much it matters not only who your president is, we say how much it matters who your governor is, especially when your governor is appointing the director of the health department in your state and what kind of edicts and mandates are going to be issued. We see how crucial that is uh, and how, it's, how much more crucial it's going to be for the future as they try to reach farther and farther and farther, uh, right into the heart of every home. So we have to, uh, Tom, who could have thought a year ago a year ago, who would have thought that you'd have a beloved grandmother, a beloved grandfather, a great-grandmother, grandfather dying, even a mother and father, uh, dying in the hospital with no one being permitted, none of their loved ones being permitted to get anywhere near them, not any one of their loved ones even be allowed to sit foot in the hospital to go with them, to be with them when they were dying. Who would have thought it possible a year ago? Uh, that there are uh, the hospital administrator hospital administrators would be forbidding that. So um, 
there'd be physical resistance, even armed resistance, to anyone trying to get to a loved one who has died in the hospital. I mean, who would have thought that possible? So we have to understand we're dealing with some very practical issues here, right? Matters of life and death, literally. And um, so we have to uh, get busy on this, but we have to realize, as you see with that 6666, it's not just a political issue, and it's not a matter, really a matter of votes. We have to see that uh, we're voting not only at the ballot box, we're voting with the rosaries in our pockets. Every one of those beads is a vote, you might say. Every Hail Mary is a vote, right? Uh, every decade of the rosary, everything we do, every sacrifice we offer, I mean, this is a kind of vote, right? And the issue really is not who will be our president or who will be our governor, it's who will be king over us. The issue is whether Christ will be king or not. And if Christ will not be king, really, if, 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 a, if a society has rejected Christ as king, then the name of the individual president, the name of the individual uh, governor, the name of the individual representatives, if they are not going to recognize Christ the King, they are, are going to be putting people through the pains of hell here on earth. They're going to be taking their society and all of its people on the short route to hell. And there I'm quoting St. Thomas More, right? If they forsake their, their private conscience for the sake of their public position or public, public welfare, then they are taking their society, their people on a short path to hell. And that's where I see them taking us now. So ultimately, this is a spiritual battle against the powers of darkness in high places. And we have to approach it that way. And we realize that, uh, we, we have to, uh, we have God's, God's grace to guide us in this and to help us and support us in this. Mm -hmm. Um, there are those who say, well, um, you know, we, 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 we prayed hard and, we don't have Hillary Clinton as our president right now, and that we evidently never will. Well, we'll see what happens, what machinations are going behind, behind the scenes even now, right? But the fact is, uh, I do believe that that was a stroke of grace from God, uh, a blessing from God, and, um, but whether it was simply, uh, a, a, let's say, a grace period given to us by God to get our act together spiritually, and uh, get ourselves turned around and on the right path morally and uh, with regard to faith? Uh, that's another question, you know. If God gave us this period to rise up spiritually, not just politically and economically, but spiritually, and we, we uh, embraced that grace from God and cooperated with it, that's one thing. If we did not, then we might be seeing God Say, well, I gave you that opportunity because you asked, you besought me, I do this for you. And um, this is how you reward my indulgence. Uh, so you see, it imposes itself upon us all the more urgently that we pray and that we be faithful and put away all sin, especially mortal sin, and live in the state of grace. That's our first responsibility before God and our loved ones here on earth to be in the state of grace, to live in the state of grace continually. That's our vocation right now. Mm -hmm. yep, that's how we oppose it.
Then we take the practical steps that God puts at our disposal after that, but we have to start there. Okay. Father, there was another question that I wanted to get into tonight. You know, with, with everything we've been talking about, everything that's going on, there certainly is uh, a lot of darkness. Things uh, can seem rather rather bleak. So with all of this going on, um, one of our, our viewers, uh, like I said, we've had several people ask about this, but uh, mm-hmm. just in particular, this one email asked if tradition teaches us anything about continuing procreation during these extremely uncertain times. She says that she's expecting the attempt at a uh, forcible vaccination of all people and the fear mongers must especially prey upon the most vulnerable the the babies the children and the elderly so do you think uh, in a situation like this father that we see in the world today with these uh, uncertain to say the least times uh, would something like natural family planning be acceptable or be permissible during the during this time well Tom that's a uh a little bit of a change, of course, but um, it does sort of uh, follow, you know, the question about bringing life into this world as it is right now. And um, especially with the influences in this world and the fear of bringing life into the world that ultimately will be lost because of the evils rampant in the world today. I think one of the part of the answer to that we find in sacred scripture where St. Paul advises uh, celibacy, where he advises people not to get married, but to Mm -hmm. consecrate their single life to the service of God. And one can see why he would do that. Now, he wasn't speaking against marriage. Christ our Lord, of course, um, extolled marriage. God himself created it, right? Not only did God create marriage at the beginning as his first human institution, uh, joining man and woman with the command to increase, multiply, and fill the earth and give life, but Christ our Lord elevated that sacrament, that, that uh, natural institution of marriage to the level of a sacrament, gave it a supernatural power, a supernatural significance, even to represent the love of, of God and his, and, his, and his church. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is the love of God and all of the faithful joined in love in heaven forever in the beatific vision. This is ultimately what marriage made matrimony, the sacrament, is meant to reflect here on earth, that love, um, a, a supernaturally powerful love, that eternal love. And so it's, uh, it's unspeakably great. St. Paul calls it the great mystery. And we, we talk about the, the mysteries of God, the divine mysteries. Historically, we're talking about the sacraments. And St. Paul refers to it as the great mystery. A great sacrament. So, um, but at the same time, he extols that. St. Paul extols it too. And in the Epistle of the Ephesians, he talks about the union between a husband and a wife. Um, that they should love each other. That the wife should love her husband as, well, the faithful love our Lord. And our Lord, and the husband should love his wife as Christ loves the faithful. The church and delivered himself for it. Uh, that love is unspeakably great, obviously. Um, and so it is that that is what the sacrament of matrimony is meant, meant to give us here on earth. Even at that, St. Paul still does advise people to remain celibate if they have the choice and remain not only chaste, but actually not to marry. 
You may say, well, why would he extol the sacrament of matrimony uh, to such a high degree and at the same time advise against it? Well, he saw the times. He saw the times. He knew they were evil. He knew as well as anyone could at that time uh, with God's ability to foresee the future that the faithful were going to be persecuted, that the church was going to undergo great persecutions. And he saw their dangers uh, of those attachments here on earth. And so he thought it best that um, men and women be free to serve Christ uniquely, uh, not to have those ties of blood and kinship. Um, St. Paul must have been well aware of our Lord's prophecy that, uh, you know, a man's enemy will, will be those of his own household, and they'll try to turn people away, you know, from uh, serving Christ out of allegiance to the family, out of, a, you know, love for the, the wife for the husband, the husband for the wife, and so on, that they will be enemies to each other in terms of eternal life. And so if St. Paul was urging people not to get involved in human entanglements, one can see, yes, okay, I understand, we're entering times of temptation, we're entering times of persecution. And I can understand why St. Paul, even though he extols marriage and extols matrimony especially, so highly he recognizes there are dangers involved too. And attachments that could be, um, well, used against one, and against one's salvation. Maybe we're in the same kind of situation today. <clears throat> uh, it might not be a stretch to say, well, what St. Paul foresaw then, we can foresee now. We see it happening before our very eyes. And maybe when we're actually urging people uh, not to seek marriage, if God presents it to them, and if God leads them that way, uh, such that there's no doubt in their mind that that is their vocation, then they will follow that vocation and they have the confidence that God will provide the graces necessary. But under no circumstances should one marry in such a way that he compromises, compromises his, his faith, compromises his allegiance to Christ. Um, if anything, at this point, God is calling people to arms, spiritual arms. And, um, you know, people will leave their families and go and fight wars, but they're fighting for their family. They're fighting for the integrity of their family, even if they have to be away from home fighting those wars. Well, again, I mean, we're talking about the church militant here, and we're talking about it. Sometimes it's necessary to fight those spiritual wars and those battles um, that are going to occupy us, maybe when we have to be totally devoted to Christ and free from human encumbrances, so to speak. What am I getting at? Well, you know, one might say this, Tom. One might answer your question this way and say, look, natural family planning <clears throat> takes away from the primary essential purpose of matrimony and marriage, even as a natural institution. The primary essential purpose of marriage, being married, getting married, is to bring life into the world. And uh, so how could this be justified in any way, they would say, right? If this natural family planning goes against the, uh, the primary essential purpose of marriage, how could it ever be justified in any way? There are those who ask that question, and they ask it in such a way that they kind of beg the question. They beg the answer, well, it can't be. 
justified ever in any way. But actually, the Catholic Church has, has said that that is not true. The Catholic Church has actually answered this question with regard to natural family planning. Because she says that the primary essential purpose of matrimony is not only to give life, but it's to nurture the life that you've given, to care for the life that you've given. It's not just to procreate as many children as you possibly can. It is actually to give life but then to accept responsibility for that life given and to raise that life and nurture that life and care for that life. And now when you, when you realize that that is involved in the primary essential purpose, not just conceiving children, <clears throat> but raising children, educating children, right? Then you realize there's a much bigger responsibility than those who simply deny uh, the morality of natural family planning ever under any circumstances. Babaius XII spoke on this very subject in the early 1950s. He was speaking to a convention of uh, midwives in Rome. Uh, 3,000 of them had gathered in Rome for a meeting, and they were looking for moral direction. The question came up, is natural family planning permitted? And if so, under what circumstances? And Papias XII said very clearly, uh, ordinarily, no. He says, there has to be some serious reason that could justify it and make it not immoral. Ordinarily, to take uh, action to prevent the conception of children in marriage would not be right unless there was some other factor involved that would make it necessary. Okay? And so immediately he situates the question on the level of not only a matter of giving life, but making it necessary by, in the sense of taking care of the life you've already given. Now that's another factor that has to be taken into consideration. And so he said, under certain circumstances, it might be necessary to practice natural family planning. And stress, the stress here is on the natural family planning, using what God has in, himself instituted in nature, right? Not doing something unnatural or contrary to nature, but just using nature to achieve this purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is to provide for the life you've already given. That's the purpose, and that's a good purpose. So he says if a couple finds that the health of the mother is so severely impaired by caring another child that she cannot take care of the children she already has. <clears throat> if she is so impaired by that pregnancy that she cannot even take care of her own children that she's already given life to, that could be, he said, could be grounds to justify natural family planning. He says if the mother's life would be threatened by another pregnancy, <clears throat> Legitimately, honestly, truly threatened, not just as, as the doctors, many doctors just say now, well, it's inadvisable for you to have any more children, so you should take these steps to stop. Make sure you can't have any more children. No, 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 he's not talking about that. He's talking about at a time when doctors, if you're honest, and they were pro-life, okay, and they were horrified by the idea of abortion and contraception, right? <clears throat> but a doctor who would honestly advise a woman, your health is so, is so impaired that a pregnancy would actually put you in great peril of dying. Well, then obviously the fact that a woman had a child or two or three or four that she had to take care of and another pregnancy could kill her, 
could be grounds to practice natural family planning, right? Um, Papias XII, as I recall, even brought up the question of uh, a couple who found that for some reason their children, and they wouldn't necessarily have understood why in those days, now we have a better understanding why, because we now have a better understanding of genetics and DNA and so on, and uh, that they have a tendency to bring children into the world who are impaired, physically or mentally impaired. So they find there's some, what we call the, today, I guess, a syndrome, that they, they tend to bring children, have a high likelihood of bringing children to the world who have the syndrome. That that could um, provide grounds for the moral practice of natural family planning. If they're so poor, not through any fault of their own, through laziness or whatever, but if they're so poor that they can't even provide the necessities of life, the necessary food, clothing, and shelter for their children, even that, as I recall, he mentioned as a possible grounds for practicing natural family planning. But notice, in every one of those cases, they already had children. In every one of these cases, they've already brought human life into the world. And they're already trying to care for those children. So the presupposition in every one of these cases where natural family planning could be justified is they've already fulfilled the purpose of bringing life into the world. And uh, so, I mean, they've already fulfilled that primary essential purpose of giving life. Now they have the responsibility of providing for that life and caring for that life. And so every one of these cases really <clears throat> is, is provided by Pope Pius XII in saying that now in the interest of providing for the life they've already given, that they could practice natural family planning for the sake of the children they already have not just for the sake of having a life children-free or uh, responsibility-free. No, it's not that at all. In fact, the church would have said at that time that if they could not provide for the children, they should have been married in the first place, right? If the woman's health is such that she couldn't conceive a child without being at great risk, again, the church would have discouraged marriage at all in the first place because she would have foreseen the dangers and, uh, and the damage to be done there. Um, so in each one of these cases, the church would have, would have saw, seen a red flag against marriage in the first place. But she's talking about people who have married, and they have brought children to the world, and they find themselves in these circumstances. He says, in these cases, that could be justified. Here's what he says, though. He says that it's not up to the individuals to go uh, on their own and just decide we are justified in natural family planning. They cannot make that decision for themselves. They should go to the priest, their parish priest, and ask him. And there's was very prudent of him to say that because if the couple, uh, if it's up to, left up to every couple to decide for themselves whether they have grounds to practice natural family planning, it's all too easy to see how self, mere selfishness could dominate, take over, and dictate that decision and then plague them later in their consciences and be a stumbling block for their consciences. Uh, and then indulge in who knows what other practices to prevent conception of a child, what other immoral practices they might be tempted to get into. Rather, they should go to the priest and they should uh, get the guidance of a priest who knows what the church teaches on that, so that the couple can accept what the priest tells them 
in good conscience and can practice that in good conscience. And the priest takes upon himself the responsibility for the answer he's given. You know? So that's, that's really essential. Now, there are groups out there in the Novus Order who are saying natural family planning is like our Catholic answer to contraception. It's not. It is not contraceptive, right? It is not the Catholic answer to contraception. Those who are saying that, they're, they're talking as though you can practice natural family planning at will, just right. for whatever reason you want, you know? Rather than reach for the birth control pill or whatever else, uh, just go ahead and practice natural family planning. That is immoral. The church has condemned that attitude um, as being contrary to what I tell you. It's the primary essential purpose of, the church, of, of a marriage in the first place. But in every single case that she would even countenance the use of natural family planning, we see two things, that they've already given life, the husband and the wife are already mother and father, and they have lives they're responsible for taking care of. And bringing another life into the world would severely hamper or make impossible the caring for the lives they've already given. Why is the church so careful about this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why. It's the same reason she has an impediment against those getting married who can't actually complete the marriage act because she sees the temptations that will be there for them if they're trying to avoid conceiving a child, still living together as, as man and wife, husband and wife. And uh, how the danger would be there that they would be tempted to do things they shouldn't do to avoid conceiving a child, things that would be gross, grossly immoral. The church sees the danger there. She's, the church is very realistic about human nature. She understands it perfectly because she understands it through the eyes of the creator who made it and the redeemer who died to restore the integrity of human nature and even beyond with grace. So the church sees human nature through the eyes of God and understands it very well and knows the temptations that it's going to be facing. So that's why she treats this very, very, very carefully and very seriously so that it doesn't pervert the most beautiful thing we have here, and that is a love between a man and a woman that is supposed to represent the love between God and his creatures who are united with him in heaven right now. That's the grandeur of the marriage vocation. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it is twisted and deformed, it becomes something very, very foul rather than something of great grandeur, which is mm -hmm. what it should be, what God made it to be. But what about the situation we find ourselves in today? Do you think that, that these times would... You would have to come back to that, right? <laughs> Do I think so? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I hear these people, these celebrities now say, well, I'm not going to have any more children yeah. because of global warming, right? Yeah. right? <laughs> or I'm not going to bring my children into the world with the COVID-19 virus right. or um, mm -hmm. disease or whatever. And, you know, you hear that kind of thing, you know? <clears throat> so... Um, Personally, I would say to a couple who are getting married today, saying, well, I'm not so sure we should have children because of this, I would tell them, then you shouldn't get married, because that's the primary essential purpose of getting married. What about someone that's already married? And someone who's already married saying, should we not have children? I would, I would have to actually tell them the same thing. I would say, look, your primary essential duty to God is to provide children, 
And are you afraid of bringing them into the world today and raising them for fear of what's going to happen to them? Uh, Adam and Eve could have said the same thing. They didn't. Okay, and here we are. So I would tell them, no, your responsibility is to have those children, bring them into the world, teach them to believe, give them faith and hope and charity, because they're more needed in the world than ever before. And that's your primary responsibility. And if you retreat from that responsibility deliberately, I mean, if you say, okay, I'll accept whatever children God gives me, and, and God doesn't give you any more children, okay, you haven't retreated from the responsibility, that's God's decision. But if you responsibly uh, say, well, I'm going to accept whatever children God gives me and I'm going to do what I can to make sure that those children become saints on earth and in heaven. And that's that's my responsibility right now. I'd say that's the purpose for which you married in the first place. You're just fulfilling uh, your marriage vows and doing that. No more, no less. So as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I would tell them that you have, m- there's more of a need for people like you to bring children into the world and to raise them. More of a need now, perhaps, perhaps than ever before, mm-hmm. since the church was founded. So we need saints. Uh, God, God wants saints. He wants mm-hmm. to form saints. And you have to trust that he is going to love these souls more than you do, and he's going to provide the graces they need to become great saints. So give life. As God says, increase, multiply, fill the earth. That command was especially to you, I would say. <laughs> so do it. Um, by the way, those who say that natural family planning is always immoral, it, it's necessary. I mean, it, you know, after a, after a mother gives birth to a child, <clears throat> it's only right and natural that there be a period of abstinence, right? And, um, I mean, even, even if I... Uh, if one of them fell ill with a highly contagious deadly disease, like we're talking about now, <laughs> or what we're told, then obviously a distancing, you know, then in that case you say, yes, abstinence would be, would be reasonable, you know, mm-hmm. would, would not be sinful at a time like that, in time of contagion and plague and so on. So we see, you know, just common sense tells us that there will be times when there will be abstinence exercised by husband and wife in their married life, right? And uh, what is that but, uh, you know, uh, an application, as it were, of natural family planning uh, to secure some good purpose and to avoid some some great harm, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Sure. No more, no less than that. Okay. Well, Father, I think we can end with that. I know we had more that we wanted to get to, and we also... Uh, plan hopefully to have our uh, local uh, resident legal expert come in and, and weigh in on this uh, HR 666 bill at uh, some point in the near future. So. Well, our viewers are familiar with Mr. Thomas Condon, mm-hmm. right, Esquire, and uh, he has agreed to come on the program actually after studying this, HR 6666, <laughs> and uh, actually discuss it. And uh, I'd very much like to see his keen legal mind analyze this and, and explain to us and to our viewers the significance of this bill. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the next program, that's what I expect will happen. So Deal. Sounds okay. good. <laughs> Thank good. you for being here tonight, Father. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. Thank yeah. you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.